As a second surge of COVID-19 hits Massachusetts, parents, unions, health, and education officials are wondering what the right path forward is for student learning. Last week, Governor Charlie Baker announced the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education guidelines would be revised to push for in-person learning even in high infection rate communities. On this week's podcast, Dr. Mary Beth Miotto, Vice President of the Massachusetts Chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics, and Glenn Kucher, the Executive Director of the Massachusetts Association for School Committees, talked to us about that decision. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So we're six months into the pandemic, and we're seeing a second surge of COVID-19 cases. Despite that, the governor and other high-level school officials are asking that school districts continue or move to reopening in-person even in hotspot areas. And they say that the data proves that schools are not places for outbreaks. And I want to get a sense from each of you what your thoughts are on that and if you think that's accurate. Um, Mary Beth, let's start with you. So um, thank you. Uh, At the beginning of the virus, I don't think you'd find any pediatrician who didn't want to do what we did which is to bring kids out of school because we had no information on what this virus would do to kids or to the staff in the schools. And we, you know, in in the case of a public health crisis, you need to be first safe and then gather a lot of data. And so I think we've done very well at the beginning of going for that safety first. And sometimes there were outcomes that none of us liked Uh, It it wasn't easy to uh, implement remote learning on the fly, uh, but people came through and that data increased and that's really what we wanted to do. So from my perspective, the uh, public health crisis management has gone as it should. And in New England in particular, in the Northeast where the states are pretty, they're not identical, but they're more similar. We've seen that Massachusetts was very conservative in their metrics, even more conservative than New York. Um, The Harvard public health experts felt as far as the metrics and the cutoffs. And then as more data specific to Massachusetts and specific to kids um, and also specific to our subsections of Massachusetts became more evident, the uh, governor adjusted some of those metrics. And as wearing my hat as a public health uh, professional, as well as a pediatrician, I feel comfortable with the notion that we will always be getting more data to get more nuanced and targeted interventions, not necessarily open the floodgates of broad stroke interventions, but giving us more data so each school district, maybe each school can be looking at what they're dealing with and find positive steps forward using a data-driven approach. Now, Glenn, can you weigh in on, on this as well? Well, the first thing I want to say is, is that, uh, you know, we do a lot of survey data, and I've done a lot of survey data over the course of my life. The most credible people in any survey data are usually pediatricians. So uh, we're in no position to argue the science of this uh, with, with, uh, with Dr. Miyono at all. And I don't disagree with the thing that she said. However, there's a matter of trust. And on the other end of the credibility level, 
for a lot of parents and for most educators in Massachusetts, you have the people who regulate education at the state level. There's just not a lot of trust uh, in what they say and what they've done. The commissioners tried very hard to uh, explain the safety rules, to explain how he genuinely believes that it's safe. I give the governor a lot of credit for not going into command and control mode as previous uh, administrations have done. He's trying to, to get people to want to do the right thing and do the right thing, and we respect that. But we can't pretend not to understand the fear that many parents have, particularly those parents uh, who live in multi-generational households or whose kids don't have the, uh, the access to resources, uh, who may not be able to get access to medical care as fast as they might like, their fear for the health and safety of their children. We also have a bunch of other issues that aren't medical that play into this. Uh, there are always those people in a crisis who see this as an opportunity to promote whatever agenda is, is on their minds. Uh, the unions have, uh, have been very aggressive in uh, stepping forward to take positions that uh, are important to their membership. Uh, just, as, uh, just as we're hearing from a lot of pediatricians around the state who are very concerned that parents have not been coming in for their well-child visits or the routine vaccinations or the medical care that they normally would if they weren't afraid to leave the house or bring their kids into a healthcare setting. All that's at play. And there's a lot of confusion out there. So I know, Glenn, you had mentioned multi-generational households. It's pretty obvious that school districts don't operate in a vacuum. They're in communities. They're in communities that might have COVID-19 infections. And last week, I believe it was on Friday, um, the governor made the announcement that he and Commissioner Riley were changing adjusting the metric formula so that the calculations for COVID-19 risk in each community was adjusted. And I believe the number went from over 100 to 16 communities in the red. But yesterday, those number of municipalities with high COVID-19 infections almost doubled. Does that change your opinion at all, Mary Beth, on, you know, I know you were at that press conference, on how this is being rolled out? I actually find it reassuring because we want those numbers to move because we know what's in the community. And um, so I'm not reassured on general, on a general level that COVID is easy. Don't get me wrong there. What I am saying is that we need to get better numbers. And I think that for a number of months, I was more concerned that we just were using such broad brushstrokes. And I don't think that the tools that school districts and school superintendents and school committees and parents had to measure safety were adequate. And uh, so when I looked at those numbers, I compared them to what New York is using, what Connecticut is using. And to be honest, they're more aligned with our neighboring states. With that said, I would push it further. You know, at the same time as we were doing that, New York was to, uh, really fine tuning into these micro clusters and um, sort of using both geography 
end population. And that's how we need to push communities to see what's happening there. Because A, central Massachusetts, western Massachusetts, and eastern Massachusetts, even broadly, are so different. Right. Um, and then those numbers of towns. So I'm in, in uh, central Massachusetts, and I'm in a town of 15,000, and I work in a city of 185,000. And those multi-generational families are my families, and I get it. Um, and we can't make those same decisions. And I want those decisions to be local. And the reality is, is that in Massachusetts, our government is set up to be local and we wanna embrace that, but we wanna give the resources to those localities. And one of the big resources is data. Other resources have to come along too. So I think they're good numbers and we shouldn't be afraid of the numbers because that will allow us to not just work out of fear, but really talk to the needs of the people in each community. Now, just a, a quick follow-up on, I know last week you were supporting the governor and his decision to adjust the metrics and also to expand in-person learning despite what the metrics say about a community being red or yellow or green. When did that decision when did you make that decision to say, okay, I think in-person in person learning is the way to go? So the chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics, <clears throat> excuse me, has been following this crisis and the response <clears throat> since June. And as we followed this step, we felt that the data-driven approach was good. I'm going to be honest, we're not... Uh, we're pretty nuanced ourselves. And so I'm not on the, on the payroll of the governor. And I will say that what I think we need to do and all of the chapter is more say, if you're in a red community, what can you do? How can you do it? And not just make it a yes or no, because there are subsets of groups. We don't want to, oh, I don't think there are many districts in Massachusetts that can just open the doors to every kid. And, um, and feasibility is so huge. And again, I work, I'm on a committee, an advisory committee with the superintendent of Worcester. And I know how hard they, the team and the school committee has worked um, and, and science has driven them. However, what I'd like to see and pediatricians would like to say is say, if you're in the red, are there kindergartners and pre-kindergartners that you could bring back based also on even more data on that subset of kids and infection rates. And, and also knowing that those kids really are having a hard time sitting at a computer. Or are there a subset of special needs kids that are small numbers? So I think that in, um, in that principle, we still feel things can be done. And that's where it's going to have to come up and go down. You're gonna to have to pause sometimes to respond to that, but in, in sort of the big philosophy of using data wisely, we still support that. So Glenn, what, what did you think of that decision last week and how is this playing out in school committees across the state? Well, we see it in, in several different ways. <clears throat> First of all, I think they're genuinely trying to get kids back in school because that's where the best learning takes place. Remote learning, especially for the younger ones, is not an adequate substitute. Right. particularly for the development that kids need and just for the social and emotional strength of, of, of the older kids. Everybody wants to be back in school. So there's, there's the public health issue. 
there's also some, some fighting going on behind the scenes between the uh, administration and the teachers' unions about uh, what the best strategy is and who's thinking about kids and who's thinking about adults and who's thinking about other agenda that are in play. So we watch that because a lot of our members are, you know, they have a political side as well as the, the, the children's advocacy side. And I think we're gonna be having this discussion renewed weekly for the next several months. And I always, uh, I always defer to the, uh, I think it's attributed to H.L. Uh, Mencken who said decades ago, and it's still correct. Those in the know don't really know. We, we think we know, but we, and that's true of Wall Street, it's true of medicine, it's true of economics especially, uh, it's true of just about everything. You try to do the right thing and you're just not sure. And where uncertainty exists, uh, we're seeing great measures of uncertainty. I see the governor being well-meaning, I see the commissioner being well-meaning, but I also see something going on in the background that says, we also need to let the unions know that they're not in charge that they don't get to tell us what to do, that they don't get to call the shots. And then people on the other end of the spectrum are saying, you know, this is the first crisis that you guys haven't been able to regulate and punish your way out of. Because, you know, in Massachusetts, education was more heavily regulated than in any other state in the country. And, and we were constantly complaining for a year. I've been first elected to my school committee in 1973, and the Department of Education was never on top of anybody's dance card and hasn't been since then. Uh, that said, uh, you know, for decades, they've been telling us what to do, micromanaging us, giving us uh, regulations. And now all of a sudden they say, well, you want local control? You want, we'll give it to you. Manage this thing at the local level. And school committees have embraced it and are trying to make the best decisions based on what they feel is the best evidence they have and collaborations with superintendents in making those decisions is important. But sometimes it flies in the face of, of, of people's other agendas besides just public health. Now, is there a gap in what school committees wish to be able to do with this crisis and what they actually can do based off of that history of the state having so much control? Well, we wish we knew what the best strategy was, but I, I think most of us have elected a remote, uh, excuse me, a hybrid model where the younger kids have been coming in and the older kids are, are coming in and out, hoping to move steadily but surely towards full return to school at some time in this academic year. That's what people want to do. Uh, they just can't do it with confidence because we don't know what's going to happen from week to week. In fact, you know, the numbers have been, uh, have been increasing. It looks like we could be back to where we were in, in May and June. And uh, that's a bit frightening. And I think that even changes the discussion from one we would have had last Friday. Mm -hmm. And so last Friday, when the governor made the announcement about the, the guidance being adjusted, there were 23 school districts that were fully remote. And I know the state response has been, let's keep this local, these are all suggestions, but there have been a couple cases, I believe in Watertown, East Longmeadow, where Commissioner Riley has said, okay, your, your plan has been to be fully remote or to delay your hybrid model. We wanna expedite that, we're going to audit you. 
does that sort of fly in the face of, okay, we're going to let localities make their own decisions, but also we're going to be hovering over and well, making people. Yeah, with all due respect, with all due respect, we didn't take that, those threats that seriously. Okay. Watertown is a very well-run public school system with very engaged parents. Uh, if, if I, we can't believe that the commissioner is sitting around worried about what Watertown's going to do. This was a statement that the department had to make to show that we're prepared to take action, even though they don't have the authority to do so. And I think that the commissioner did what he had to do just to, uh, to show some strength in the commissioner's office and to please the secretary of education uh, and the governor. Uh, I haven't had this conversation with the commissioner, but that, that's the general sense of, of uh, what we're thinking about what that was all about. So keeping in mind that a lot of students, a significant portion of students are still remote only, and you have a lot of high need students who need to be back in person, um, and younger children who learn best in person, um, is there any accountability if school districts decide, hey, we want to continue being remote? We've considered it. We've decided not to go the way of hybrid or in-person learning. If people game the system, if the unions refuse to go back into school because their teachers don't want to go back into school and it's not a health reason, if you can find illegitimacy in those arguments, then the state may have some authority in coming in and, and giving a directive. But in the meantime, people are really making their best judgment based on what they think is most appropriate in general. They are challenging the unions to uh, cooperate with them. The Labor Relations Commission has weighed in on, on what people can, uh, can do in terms of civil disobedience, and that's not tolerated. So uh, I think we've reached... Uh, at some point, we're at a state of detente, and I think that's where we're going to be for a while. And so there's been significant data collection that comes out, I believe, every Thursday at 5 o'clock of school districts, uh, positive cases. I know some of the unions have said, oh, that data is not accurate enough. What have you both heard about the actual data and metrics being used to assess COVID-19 in school districts? Glenn, you can go first. I don't question the data. I, I, I have great trust in, in the public health officials who gather that data. I have no reason to doubt them. Okay. Yeah, and I, I feel that we are getting good data both um, in the state and then also in um, more nationally, as in Brown University has the COVID-19 school response dashboard which the numbers are really growing on that. And so we can compare ourselves to what's going on around the country. And even in Massachusetts, we have Catholic schools open, we have um, special ed collaboratives open, private schools in different ways, right? And different levels of health measures in those. And so I think that most people are not questioning that when I hear of it um, sort of on a big level of people who are watching. I'm gonna be honest, I feel we're doing a bad job of educating people on how to look at the data. I so I go in and I ask questions every time I see a family, which is at, in my job very frequently, every 20 minutes, I ask, what are you feeling about school, about your life and so forth? And these are, again, these are inner city Worcester families. 
Um, so, and there's fear and I talk to them. Some just have that fear and I'm not gonna get past that. But I think um, for teachers, uh, for a lot of other people who, this is a lot of information, we need to do better at talking about good data. And I don't think we're doing a good enough job and we don't necessarily, so this is what teachers need to do, right? We need to teach better statistics and such and understanding data to kids all the way through um, growing up. And that's who will do it. Teachers can solve these things. But I think the data is good. Our explanation of data, maybe not so good. Okay. And I, I know you mentioned Catholic schools and also parochial schools have been open for a significant amount of time in person. And a lot of, I mean, I believe none of them have seen outbreaks. There have been almost zero cases of COVID-19. Are there any lessons that can be taken from those schools and applied to public schools? Both of you. I would like to say that there's a lot of lessons that we're going to have to keep learning. And I think Glenn really put it best that, you know, those answers are going to keep coming over and over in different ways. But what we are seeing is that the expectation that remote learning is zero risk is very misguided and zero risk for COVID because we see that families can't sit on their kids all day and they have to share care, they go out and play, they go to big family uh, reunions and things like that. So the COVID risk remote, some it, it is showing in data and those parochial schools that COVID risk outside of school is actually possibly equal or higher than when you're in school and you're wearing a mask and you have a caring teacher, school nurse, explaining how to take care of yourself. And perhaps then you're going home and taking better care of yourself. And I think that we are learning about that and we've got to apply it. Go on. I'd say pediatricians have the credibility to sell that argument. Um, state bureaucrats do not. And that's part of the problem. And so just going back to the question, are there any things that you've seen from reporting in the past few months on Catholic schools? I know my, my colleague, Michael Jonas, actually wrote a story about how there's such low infection rates in Catholic schools. But is there anything you've heard about that they're doing in their schools that could be applied to public schools to make the transition to in-person learning easier? There are low rates in public schools as well. Uh, what we don't know is for those kids who have contracted COVID, uh, it does appear based on anecdotal data that we're hearing from our members that they're bringing it in from someplace else, that uh, it happens in a, in a family structure and they come to school. Uh, and, and I'm confident that COVID is not spread inside a public school based on anything that's going on in the public school. I think we, we pretty much cannot dispute that. It's the concern about uh, what happens if it gets out of control. So the governor was in Carlisle School District yesterday with um, Education Secretary Pizer and also Commissioner Riley. And again, he was talking about how this was a school district where things were going quite smoothly with in-person learning. He, you know, sat in on some classes with students, a math lesson, I think. Um, and just watching social media over the night, it seemed like people both had very positive reactions to that press conference, but also very negative reactions. 
taking well, into account that each school district is different and Carlisle is in a specific part of the state and might be more well off. The, the governor and the, and the education secretary should spend a little less time worried about Beverly and Swampscott and Carlisle and Wayland and Wellesley and more time looking at what's happening in Boston and Worcester and Lawrence and Springfield and Chelsea to get a sense of, of uh, what's happening in the larger districts where COVID is, is at a much higher rate and where you have more families and more people living more closely together in a risky environment. And to go to uh, Carlisle and hold a press conference, it's a wonderful school district. They do very well, it's very well managed. The parents are very engaged, but it's not the same uh, epidemiologically, uh, that's the right word, uh, comparison to the bigger cities where uh, you have multi-generational families. You know, we have, uh, we've, we have for a long time had children who are caring for their aged parents and their aged children. And now we have people dealing with their parents, children, grandparents, and grandchildren. We used to have the sandwich generation. Now we have the club sandwich generation, everybody under the same roof. And it poses risks for uh, the more vulnerable older people as well. Well, with communities with higher infection rates, you also have people in school districts that are more diverse, um, more students who are black and brown immigrant. And these are families that often have to work low-wage jobs, who are out in the community more often, who have the opportunity to bring the infection home because they have no other option. Now, take, keeping in mind, okay, the governor went to Carlisle yesterday. What would you recommend, both of you, and in, in telling them, okay, maybe you should go to Chelsea. Um, what things do you think they should be looking at in these other school districts? Certainly reinforcing the strategies that we know work, uh, being like more what? aggressive in getting people to wear masks, uh, probably getting people uh, better access to testing so that we can see who's at risk, uh, and, and possibly doing something about the economics of helping those parents get back to work uh, or, or, uh, or uh, uh, improving the, uh, the, the capability for remote learning at home. Because in those, in those households, you don't always have enough uh, bandwidth or computer access to help the kids succeed at home. I'm not sure that pushing them back into school is, is going to work if we see higher numbers than normal of kids coming from home into school with, uh, with higher uh, infection rates. So you're saying in-person learning might not be the immediate best route for say Chelsea or yesterday we heard about Fall River's numbers to go. Not if people lack confidence and they don't feel that their kids are safe. So Mary Beth, you're, you're in a high risk um, community. What are you seeing as someone who's a public health professional? So, you know, I, first of all, I really want parents to have the choice. And I, I hear this from both school committee members, um, parents, everyone. And here's the thing that I would say, some of the parents don't have a choice because the school's not open. And we keep hearing about, you know, parents should have that autonomy, but my parents don't have that autonomy. They are home and they can't do what a lot of the more privileged parents have. So I had, I usually see people in person, but I have about one telehealth um, half day per, per week. And yesterday was mine. 
And that was with, um, I had a number of parents of kids with ADHD and learning problems and they were young. So I had a parent who she does not have, she now has the Wi-Fi bandwidth. She doesn't have the life bandwidth to sit next to her second grader as many parents are. And I tip my hats to those parents. Um, and, and if I were in that position, I might be able to make that happen, but I'm not a Worcester parent. And she doesn't have the bandwidth to make her child sit at the computer with the ADHD, a second grader all day. And what I'd like to see the governor and his um, cabinet do is be looking at what are the different solutions families are relying on because the texture of how they put things together really varies. And if we are saying in some of those challenged school districts, and, and remember, some of this isn't even, it's, some of this is about HVAC, some of it's in Worcester, a lot of it's about busing. If we have these realities, I don't wanna be saying just yes or no in school. I wanna say, what are we giving to families to make it work on either side? Give parents true choices. If your child is, is in kindergarten and you're keeping a 16 year old in charge of the kindergartner, neither the 16 year old or the uh, five year old has either the ability to learn while you're at work or is safe. I'm gonna be honest, they're not safe. And we saw the CDC this morning come out with just the spring numbers for um, ER visits for um, mental health reasons in both five to 11 year olds and teenagers, 24% increase in the spring alone. And what we're seeing when I talk to um, pediatric hospitalists and such around the state is I'm hearing about um, children having to board in ERs because there's no beds for mental, there are no mental health beds. I'm hearing about the fact that there are more, there are, we have not had a child COVID death, but we have had many suicide deaths and child suicide deaths. And we have more admissions in some hospitals for, for suicide attempts in children than for COVID. I think we're at that point now, we're well into it and we need the texture and the governor needs to get in charge of saying, what are parents actually dealing with when they're uh, working with the resources they have? And, and just as Glenn said, what do those districts need but what do we talk about for aftercare, during care and everything like that? We're almost past the Wi-Fi. I think we've done pretty well. The schools have really worked very hard on Wi-Fi. But what about I have five kids and I just can't get them to sit down? Because what I'm seeing is there was sort of a honeymoon period in Sept like September 15th to maybe October 12th. People were like, oh, I'm back to school, I'm excited. I've seen that honeymoon period of remote learning for stressed households, and even for upper middle class households, that's over. And so we need real time solutions. If we're doing remote learning or hybrid learning uh, or in person, we need a lot more texture to the solutions. Now does in-person learning offer better um, access to mental health services and the monitoring that those kids need after this extended period of time at home? I, I feel it does, yeah. Glenn? Social contact, social contact, dealing with people, additional people who care about kids. And, and let's not forget those kids. This is another side. There weren't enough anxiety going on in the world. Uh, the kids are the juniors and seniors trying to figure out what to do about college and career. 
when they haven't been able to take SATs, they may not have sufficient grades, they need to get to their teachers and counselors to get their college applications in and, and uh, losing out on some of the most important uh, sort of social development years of their uh, post-adolescent lives or adolescent lives. Uh, I'm, I'm concerned about putting things back together again when society has to start coming together in a post-COVID world and uh, make up for what kids have lost not to mention the kids who've lost early childhood experiences and uh, the academic experiences that come with learning to read and learning to write and learning to socialize. So, school nurses and school adjustment counselors and, and school-based health centers, all who can help. And they're doing amazing jobs, even sort of breaking down the walls and calling people, but we really um, need them. And we haven't even touched the surface also on neglect and abuse where nobody sees the kids. So. Just keeping in mind, we might have to wrap it up a little bit soon. I do want to ask one final question. Through the lens of moving toward in-person learning, what do you think the best tool or the next move the administration should be making to help either those parents, those school districts, those school committees transition smoothly? Um, Glenn, let's start with you. I wish I knew. I, I wish I knew. I mean, I would say that getting engaged in a more productive dialogue with parents and teachers, unions and school officials would probably be important. Uh, we've had plenty of instruction about the medicinal or the medical side of COVID. You're right. People need to understand more clearly the data that would help explain why it might be more safe and it should come from credible people. Those people who can make statistics and data analysis understandable to the public at large will be invaluable here. And that's not a skill that uh, educators learn in ed school. Uh, it, and it's not something that, that a lot of clinicians learn either. And, and, and uh, you, you're correct in pointing out that the public's understanding, the public's complexity tolerance about safety issues for COVID is not high, excuse me, it, it's very low. And, and maybe that's a major area of public education that we need to pursue. Mary Beth? Well, I, I'm gonna just add to what Glenn said because I agree entirely with what he said. I guess I think it's also sort of jumping off what he talked about. Glenn spoke about the sort of bi-directional communication, some active listening. Um, from the districts and all of the stakeholders, because we have an, a really incredible state. We have um, academic centers. We have a lot of people who have great wisdom and the teachers and the school committees and everybody all have a piece of the picture. What I would say now is that I feel again, like some of the medical stuff has actually gone very well. I have been part of um, teaching pediatricians and school nurses some of the uh, sort of scenarios, testing, and who, who leaves school when they have a symptom and so forth. Those are strong. I think testing is better in Massachusetts than most places, but there are little pieces of implementation that may need to be coming from the district. So I um, had a meeting with the head of the school, uh, the Massachusetts School Nursing uh, Organization recently, and we were talking about the rapid testing Right. That was rolled out. And um, there's this assumption that the amount of PPE 
that the school nurses have is adequate because they put in these big orders in the spring and the summer and they did a really good job on the estimates, but that wasn't taking into account that they may have to do a lot of rapid testing. So I think that we need to now get into all those little implementation pieces and say to the school nurses, say to the teachers, say to all the different people, the food workers, say, you know, what worked, what hasn't worked, what are you afraid of? And let's figure out if this is a fear for implementation that we need. What resources do you need that are uh, maybe not just money, but sort of implementation help to say this worked in uh, Carlisle and we can't reproduce it in Worcester, but maybe we can take a piece of that experience and make it work better and have the state help. And they've done some good jobs, but I think we're at this next step and the, the schools and the families need that next step to come. Those are some very insightful suggestions. Glenn Kucher, the executive director of Massachusetts Association of School Committees and Mary Beth Mioto, um, Dr. Mary Beth Mioto, the vice president of the chapter of American Academy of Pediatrics. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. This has been another episode of the podcast. I'm Sarah Betancourt from Commonwealth Magazine. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you next week.